Oh, I reckon that'll be quite enough of that uh, wonderful episode of Kingswood Country there. Uh, Anyone who's familiar with that show will know for certain that that's about as much of it as we'd want to play in 2022. Welcome to episode 135 of The Cool Room. I'm your host, David Griffiths. You won't have to hear too much from me today, as I have a couple of helpers who are going to have a fantastic interview with Shambles Brewery. That's the only thing that I could think of that had an audio clip relevant to Shambles. Uh, Don't worry. The show will only get better from here on in. Uh, That was just our little introduction. Uh, We would really encourage you, if you want to make the most of this episode, to make sure that you have some delicious beer from Shambles with you. Uh, You can obviously get that from the brewery, but in our Shopify, which is the Cool Room Podcast Shopify store, you can get six great beers from Shambles for just $50, uh, and they're big beers too. Uh, I think it's worth saying that four of the the six of them are 500ml cans, as we'll talk about in the episode, uh, and they are incredibly enjoyable beers. I think it's fair to say that everyone who was live with us on the Zoom really enjoyed the wide range of beers that are in the pack. Uh, I'd encourage you to get hold of those. I'd encourage you to keep an eye on our Facebook so that you can find out about upcoming episodes uh, and the tasting packs that will accompany them. There are some absolute rippers, uh, particularly collective arts, live from Canada into your Melbourne homes uh, on the 10th of July, which is not far away at all. Uh, As I said, uh, we have two interviewers today, but not myself. I pop up for a very brief cameo, uh, but Mr Warren Wu and our good friend Jacob Jackson will be the ones doing the bulk of the lifting today. Uh, I'm really grateful for them to stepping up and taking care of those things while I was off doing other work stuff. So, without any further ado, let's go over to Mr Warren Wu. Okay, and with the in the cool room today, we are very, very privileged to have um, Shambles, and we've got Cornell from Shambles uh, joining us with um, their amazing Tasmanian beers. Finally, we've got another Tasmanian brewery on, um, and today, unfortunately, uh, David Griffith has some some council some council matters he has to attend to so we're lucky enough to have uh jacob filling in for tonight and hitting in some questions and steering this ship so yeah very exciting night and hello to jake uh, thank you warren uh yeah we stick with the alliterated names here of warren Wu and jacob jackson uh <laughs> yeah thank you for having me as a, a guest host tonight and um i'm a big fan of shambles i, I visited them in tassie just last year, and yeah, it was very some very nice beers had. So I'm looking forward to seeing the current offerings. Great. Um, so tonight we are kicking off with the afternoon delight, the Shambles Summer Ale, um, great 500 mil can uh, we've we've got here. Um, I thought a nice place. Well, the usual place we start uh, is asking Cornell. Uh, tell us about Shambles. Tell us about. Um, but let's start with a picture of the brewery and and where it sits in the world. Cool. Is this this where you cut in some professional footage later on of like? Yeah, yeah, totally. Brewery? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. We we we, <laughs> we get drones um, so, and we fly them around your brewery, and it's it's amazing. So imagine a brewery. Um, it looks very much like that. Um, no, we um, so shambles was. Um, 
kind of like a lot of craft breweries around Australia um, in the last, you know, five to 10 years was basically madness, you know, just a midlife crisis <laughs> gone wrong. Um, I was a maths and science teacher um, before that, had a science and maths background down here at UTAS, um, and I've been homebrewing since I was at uni. Um, and it was basically just a hobby that kind of grew and grew and grew. And I got more and more passionate about um, to the point where, as I sort of started hating my day job, I started enjoying my weekend brews more and more and eventually decided that um, I wanted to have a crack at turning it into a profession. Um, so that's kind of where it all all kind of started. Um, and yeah, it, it was one of those sort of very scary things to kind of do um, to try and um, you know, um, get some in investment from, you know, people you know and people you don't um, to fund it and to back yourself enough to think that, you know, the beer you're brewing at home might be, you know, good enough to produce it large scale commercially. Um, but yeah, so it was about, uh, we opened our doors about six and a half years ago. So it was, you know, seven years ago when um, I took my long service leave and the rest of the year leave without pay and basically just put everything into finding a venue, ordering gear and building it. Um, and we were, yeah, it took us a while. We had a lot of um, false starts in terms of venue. We almost sort of gave up on the, I really wanted it to be a brew pub. I wanted it to be a venue where you could, you know, go and, you know, drink the beer in the shadow of the tanks and meet the, the brewers and the, you know, people working there and to kind of have that authentic experience. Um, and yeah, we were lucky enough to eventually find a venue that's about sort of five blocks up from the CBD in Hobart on the main strip on Elizabeth Street. Um, it was traditionally a little bit of a dead part of town, like you mm -hmm. kind of have all the action in the centre and then there's sort of like a restaurant strip in North Hobart, um, but it's sort of grown um, yeah, yeah, partly because of us, but also a lot of other cool things are happening in that area as well. So a lot of, a lot of um, other businesses have opened there. Um, yeah, it's in an old butchery building. Wow. Um, so our landlords, um, the Mundys, um, they they operated for 40, 50 years, uh, a family kind of, you know, wholesale butchery business that was called Mundy and Sons. Mm -hmm. um, and when we when we moved in, when we sort of found a place, um, it's a it's it's a bit of a strange building. There's there's a sort of front bar that's on the street, and you have to sort of go through this little you know middle room where the toilets are to get to the warehouse where the brewery is and by then it becomes two-story so the butchery was underneath mm -hmm. us but where the brewery is was also a butchery back in the day mm -hmm. so um it's got that sort of history of, of meat processing um so yeah we we basically yeah turn the warehouse into a brewery turn the front room into a bar um put a kitchen in and um that's where we still are and um yeah, we were trying to think of names of, you know, what to call it because, it, you know, like the the sort of homebrew kind of growing out of homebrew, it was about the beer, it was about the recipes, it was about, you know, um, flavour and about that stuff. It wasn't really about marketing or anything like that. So when we were coming close to opening, we were like, what are we calling this thing? Like we didn't have a name. Um, and one of, my, um, one of my best friends is a graphic designer and also, you know, he's generally creative and, um, yeah, it got him to sort of, come up with a few concepts and we were trying to think of things that were connected to butchery in some way but you know um slaughterhouse brewery just didn't have a ring to it um you know blood and guts didn't really work either um so he was sort of researching words that were connected to to butchery and he came across shambles 
um, which most people don't realize is connected to butchery because its modern connotation is of mess and chaos. But the reason it's got that modern meaning is because traditionally in old England, um, the, the area, particularly in York, um, where I think the term originated, there's a, there was a street that was dedicated to all the butchers um, and it was called the shambles. And that street was obviously, they didn't have refrigeration. So they would, you know, slaughter their animals in the morning, um, you know, cut them up, stick them on, on tables down the street. People would come and buy their meat. By the end of the day, things are starting to smell a bit. You know, they're washing blood and guts into the street. And yep. by the end of it, it was pretty messy. So the word shambles actually used to mean a meat market or slaughterhouse. Mm. And because those were messy places, people started describing any kind of mess as a shambles. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where it's so we kind of liked that it had a connection to where the building came from and its history. Yep. Um, it sort of described the state of the building when we found it. <laughs> um, it described, you know, my state of mind <laughs> throughout kind of, you know, um, doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, it still describes kind of how we operate. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's basically that's... where we are and where, where we came from. That's excellent. That's... Come in with a quick question, Warren, just on this yeah, one. Yeah, um, yeah. So you're talking about the former butchery sort of history of the site, and um, I had a look through your uh, online posts from your kitchen, and there's some very amazing meat dishes coming out of your kitchen. Is that inspired a bit by the site? Like I saw things like a rib burger and a smoked um, medicine, and it really made my mouth water. Sort sort of yes and no. I mean the 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 kitchen team like they have creative freedom to kind of do whatever they want with specials and um a lot of the of our menu has sort of evolved over time based on what people like but we did when we very when we first opened and we had a very very you know we pr practically no kitchen but we had a guy who was working in that space and still managing to pump out some you know really simple kind of um good beer food um he was basically buying all of his meat from downstairs because our landlords are still operating when we opened. Um, they closed three years ago. They retired and closed, and we've now taken over downstairs, and that's where we do all our canning. So as we've expanded, um, we were lucky enough that they kind of moved on, so we didn't have to move. We could just take over more of the building space. Um, but, yeah, when we opened, they were still operating, so they were still selling meat. So um, wow. our chef at the time was buying meat from downstairs. And the lovely, you know, kind of you know marketing full circle story is that um, – John Mundy, one of the, uh, you know, the his sister Katrina and him um, are the kind of like uh, the the people who who ran um, the butchery. Their their um, dad Rex started it, and he died shortly after we um we um got there. Um, John takes all of our spent grain because uh, he also farms deer and farms sheep. So sorry, not sheep, uh, cows. So we were actually buying back some of the beef and venison that was fed with our own spent grain um so we sort of got to tell that story for a little while while they were still operating which was was quite nice yeah that's really lovely mm. yeah one of those circular yeah one of those things yeah the closed loop kind of deal yeah i really love that yeah, um, kind of cool. carbon footprint certainly is something a lot of breweries are looking at now so that'd be a great way to bring it down yeah unfortunately they 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 stopped trading a few years ago so we can't do that anymore but um it was good while it lasted mm. he still takes our grain by the way he still feeds his um cows and, and deer with um our spent grain so yeah it's good yeah that's still great that's awesome um mm. and you briefly described describe your little part of the world but yeah as as i don't know if david mentioned on the podcast but yeah we've got more 
people listening to the podcast internationally than we do domestically, which just kind of blows my mind. So I'm just going to keep on saying it and you'll probably hear it four times in this podcast. But yeah, and like we all know and we've all heard and we all kind of, have, have, most of us have experienced how wonderful um, Tasmania and Hobart are. But yeah, for the people uh, out in the world beyond our little borders, um, yeah, can you describe uh, where you are and yeah, the environment that you sit in? Um, it's basically like New Zealand, but not as cool. <laughs> uh, not quite as spectacular yeah. um but no many parts of it are it, it's it's got a very similar climate to new zealand mm-hmm. um uh and obviously you know sort of the um you know scandinavian side of you know northern parts of europe um mm-hmm. and even you know um in canada and the rest um so it's quick it's quite cold in winter but not really cold enough to snow <laughs> um so we we get to freeze but not have the cool bits um the the fun of the snow but um it's a very um a lot of it's really rugged and wild so um you know there are um a couple of cities um you know a few cities a couple of major cities uh, lots and lots of little towns spread out around the place but the entire state only has a population of about 500,000 people mm. Um, Hobart, the capital, is in the south of the state, and it's um, yeah, it's it's a really small city by most standards, um, but it's kind of got everything. It's um, you know, it's really um, it's a really comfortable place to live. Um, it's really fairly easy to get around. Um, you know, we don't really have a lot of traffic compared to the bigger cities. It's getting worse, but um, it's one of those places where you know you could commute an hour to work. And um, basically live in a amazing beachside shack town <laughs> um, because it's it's so um, it's not that populated and um, there's so much cool you know um, I get coastline wilderness um, forests mountains like that kind of stuff it's yeah it's a really beautiful place awesome terrific I suppose we've got a really exciting lineup for beers but and I suspect we should start talking about them since we're here to do that. Uh, so the first one, yeah, the the, the summer ale. Um, I thought a nice way to go would be to help us, yeah, the, tell us about about the history of the 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 summer ale. I suppose um, the afternoon delight. Well, you've kind of you've picked a really interesting beer to start with because um, uh, it does have a really interesting story, interesting to me at least, mm-hmm. um, because it's it's an amazing example of serendipity how sometimes um you know accidents can actually work out really well um when we were building the brewery we had a pretty quick turnaround um from build to opening we um we started clearing out the warehouse in like august september of 2015 um by october we were starting to build and the brewery gear sort of arrived somewhere in mid-november um by Christmas, we were really, really close, sparring a bit of electrical, and we were brewing in January. Wow. So we kind of got everything up and running um, in sort of three months. And we were, you know, we were, like everybody, it was like, you know, I started that year trying to build a brewery and get it open before Christmas because, mm-hmm. you know, that seems to be everyone's deadline. It'll be open by Christmas because um, it's the busy period. It's when you kind of want to launch stuff. Um, but we missed that deadline and opened in January. So by then we were kind of like, come on, got to open, got to open, got to open. Um, we've got a relatively small brewery in, on, in the scheme of things. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a um, twelve hectare brew house, 
um, so 1200-litre um, brew lengths with double-sized fermenters, so 2400-litre fermenters, so double batches gets us, you know, um, two and a half thousand litres of beer. And, and we started with just four fermenters um, and a bright tank. So obviously, you know, as soon as we can have four beers ready, we can open. Um, and in going through all old homebrew recipes, you're trying to think about what's going to wow people and what's going to please the people who aren't into craft beer what's going to please the beer nerds you know what are we going to do to kind of like come out of the gate strong um and rather than go for a pale ale or something you know kind of entry level i was sort of a bit pig-headed and kind of going no nah, we're going to brew the beers i want to drink you know the, the recipes that i've been proudest of um and so rather than uh, i knew i wanted to brew you know our ipa but the it's obviously been tweaked a little over time, but what our current IPA, I wanted that to be one of the first four. I wanted something a bit more sort of malty and in between pale and hoppy. So something, you know, an amber ale, um, red ale. Um, I wanted a dark beer, a porter. And for the for the light beer, um, I was almost going to brew a Saison, but then I thought, no, nah, I'm going to do a session IPA. I'm going to do something that's still really hoppy, you know, um, and I'm not going to care if people come in and go, what have you got that's like a mainstream lager? Um, you know, to begin with, I'm happy to sit behind the bar and go, nothing. <laughs> um, so basically I picked a session IPA recipe. So it was supposed to be, um, you know, sort of 4.85%, um, supposed to be really punchy and hoppy, quite bitter. Um, and I had a recipe that I really like using two of my favorite hops, which are Centennial and Citra. Mm -hmm. And so this is the first beer that went through the brew house. Um, and many breweries, you know, you kind of go into that first brew thinking that something might go wrong and you're probably going to have to throw this beer away. Like that's how a lot of, a lot of brewers will tell you that you don't expect to keep the first beer, maybe not even the first five or 10 beers mm -hmm. um, that you make because you've got to test the system. You've yeah. got to, you know, you'll, you'll find kinks, you'll find things that don't work, things will go wrong. Uh, so you'll end up dumping a lot of beer. Um, which when you've spent a lot of money starting a brewery and, you know, you've run out most of the budget and you really need to open, um, the concept of pouring beer down the drain is just awful. So we went into this first beer with a guy who helped commission the brewery um, and he was basically, you know, we'd gone through water brews and learned how to use the system and he was basically there teaching me how to use, how to work this, this brewery and upscale, you know, what, everything I knew about brewing to this kind of, this gear relatively simple gear but um and very manual like our brewery is all you know manual valves to do everything and move things around um obviously got pumps and motors and things like that but um uh you know there's there's no computer automation or anything like that yeah so basically we were brewing this beer and mm -hmm. um you know he would we'd, we'd mashed in um and then you know he said oh we'll give the kettle another rinse because it's you know it's only just been you know passivated and you know we, we will make sure it's clean and moving valves around and I'm just sort of watching and then you know sort of realized 10 minutes into what he was doing I'm like shouldn't that one over there be shut um and he's like oh yeah it should you know I guess we are throwing away this beer because he'd accidentally left a valve open and added 300 liters of cold water to the match so you know, we'd mashed in it. We'd mashed in it like you know, 66 degrees. It was meant to have a lot of residual. Like it was meant to be a, a relatively a decent finishing gravity, like you know, 1.1010, you know, specific gravity. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, by dropping the mash temp, 
two things had happened. He obviously dropped the mash temp down to like 63, 62, which meant the beer was going to dry out. But also there was too much water in the mash tun. So when it came to sparging, um, we were obviously going to lose efficiency because, you know, we sort of diluted that sugar and then couldn't rinse with as much water when we were sparging, um, if all that makes sense. Um, so it was kind of screwed from the outset that, um, you know, the beer we, the, 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 the uh, work we got into the kettle um, was, you know, sort of about eight or 10 points low in gravity compared to what we were targeted um, and mashed really low. So it was going to finish really, really dry. It wasn't going to have the body that I wanted. And so at that point, I'm like, well, I'm not going to waste hops on this. You know, I'm not going to just throw the original recipe worth yeah. of hops, and the original bitterness level in. So I'm going to dial that back and just, you know, I'm going to sort of halve the amount just so that I can make sure that the boil's working and that we yep. can kind of, you know, the rest of the system will work. Right. So lowered the hop level, lowered the um, bitterness level. Um, and then, you know, took it to, you know, like I'm not going to dump it at that point. We want to make sure the fermenters are working and the cooling's working. So we'll take it through fermentation. We'll add yeast. We'll kind of, you know, make sure that's all kind of working. And we're tasting this beer in the fermenter and I'm so disappointed. It's, you know, it's thin. It's, it's um, you know, it's it's tasting nowhere near as sweet as it should have when it first went in. Um, you know, the bit of bitterness level's low. The hops are there, but they're, they're really subtle. It's not this session IPA that I wanted it to be. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, brewed the next beer, um, the Amber Ale, that went really, really well, exactly to recipe. We'd sort of find out the kinks, brewed the IPA, super happy with it, you know, brewed the porter. Awesome. Um, and then kind of went through fermentation with this beer and, you know, kind of like tasted it, took samples, kind of got to the point where it needed to be dry hopped. Um, and again, the original recipe had heaps of dry hop, a big dry hop, because it was meant to be a session IPA. I'm like, do we bother if we're going to dump this anyway? Yeah. But I'm tasting it and kind of going, it's really clean. Like it's a really clean tasting beer. It's fermented really well. Like there's nothing wrong with this beer. It's just not session IPA. It's not the mm -hmm. beer that I wanted to brew. Yeah. And we, we, we want to open in two weeks time. I can't afford to like, you know, throw this away and start again. And I, you know, yeah. my business partners were trying to convince me we'll just open with three beers, you know, and I'm like, no, that's shit. We've got four tanks. I want four beers. Yeah. So I'd rather delay opening and rebrew it than, um, you know, yeah, then then, have three beers, yeah. One, one yeah, then have three beers. So at that point, I kind of made a choice that you know what, it doesn't matter. It's our opening. We've just got to have four beers on tap. And if this is an if this is a um, clean, fault-free beer, even if it's not the beer I aimed out aimed to brew, mm. um, it's going to be fine. We'll make you know twenty kegs of it. It'll sell out, and then I'll fix it next time. You know, right. it can just be some random pale ale that we had on tap at the beginning mm. that's got some sort of random name. So I decided to add the dry hops, basically. I cut them back and, you know, made it kind of made the dry hop fit the beer that it was, not the beer that it was meant to be. Um, stuck with Centennial and Citra and saw it through to the end. And then, you know, clarified it, packaged this beer and kind of went, so it's actually a really nice, easy drinking pale ale, but it's not an American pale ale because it's not big enough. Like it, it ended up, as I suspected, it started, it started with a low gravity. It finished with a low gravity. So it ended up being 4.3%, which is a weird ABV. Couldn't really call that an American pale ale. Uh, it's not really an Australian pale ale because it's got American hops in it. it. It didn't fit into any style category. So it's a good beer. It's really tasty. It's really refreshing. It's subtle. It's fruity. But it doesn't fit a style category. So, like, what the hell are we going to call this? We're going to, you know, going to get laughed at if we call it an American pale ale. And I just went, who cares? Like, we're going to sell it and fix it next time. 
right? So who gives a shit what we call it? Um, I'm just going to call it a summer ale because that's what breweries do when they've got a beer that, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that they're releasing in summer, yeah, um, you know, and it was, it was February when we opened um, and it was still warm. So we just called it summer ale and um, I gave the tasting notes to Andrew, our graphic designer, who, my mate, Andrew, who, who also, you know, like I said, he does a lot of other creative stuff too. So I gave him tasting notes for the beers and he came up with the names. So he kind of went, you know, refreshing, citrusy, summer's day. He's like, oh, I know, you know, skyrockets in flight, afternoon delight. delight. So, so he, you know, we'll call it that. We'll go on tap and then, you know, and basically as soon as we'd emptied the tank, I was sort of already, you know, working on a, on, yeah. on our fifth beer and then our sixth beer. And then I thought, you know, um, that'll run out in a few, you know, in a month or so and I'll, I'll fix it. Like the next time around, I'll brew the, the original recipe, the session IPA that it was meant to be. And lo and behold, it like out of the gate, it was selling like hotcakes. People were loving it. We were getting nothing but positive comments about the beer. Awesome. And we got halfway through this first batch so quickly that when I was ready to brew the session IPA, I had three weeks of people telling me how awesome the summer ale was. Mm. And this is a great beer and I've had nothing like it. But I kind of went, oh, shit. I have to keep brewing this now. <laughs> like I can't make it the one off that I thought it was. And now I need to do it on purpose. Um, wow. So yeah, I brewed a second batch basically because it was easier than brewing a new recipe, like something completely new, but actually then the second time around actually targeted the parameters that we got the first time and just did it properly. If that makes sense. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't replicate it by kind of going, Oh, I'm going to add 300 liters of cold water to the mash. Um, I just changed the base recipe and changed the mash temp and, you know, basically made the same beer without mistakes, made it efficiently. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's what it is. And it still is that same recipe to this day. And um, it very, very quickly became our most popular beer. Um, and, you know, even when we started first packaging canning a few years ago, it was one of the two beers we launched that in the IPA and, you know, the cans fly off the shelves um, because it sort of sits in that, Slightly different space, you know, yeah. um, yep. easy drinking, um, fruity but not over the top, not too bitter. Um, it's kind of just a bit of a, it's a it's a nice entry-level craft beer. Yeah. Um, so it's the beer, you know, that when people come in and they've never had a craft beer before and say, what do you recommend? We're like, start there, start with some, you know. Yeah. Um, I have to make note of our um, other host, uh, David Griffiths, is uh, in the chat and he, he did note that he thought that was one of the best beer origin stories he's ever heard. And I have to yeah, totally agree. With him. And he's heard a lot. So yeah. he's not just saying that, he's, he's heard many. So, Well, it's sort of funny because um, when, when I was talking about that to people at the beginning and people were asking about it, I was very honest about, you know, how it came to be. Mm. And I had a bunch of people telling me, you know, oh, you might want, not want to admit that, you know, you might want to say that it, you did it on purpose, you know, don't admit that it was a mistake. I'm like, why? Like yeah. it's, it's, it's a really interesting story. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that a lot of the time as brewers, we are really clouded by our own expectation of what a beer should be. No. Um, you know, we design a recipe, like I'm the biggest critic of something we brew. There are many beers I've brewed where it hasn't, it's, it hasn't turned out the way I imagined in my head or, mm -hmm. you know, on my palate. Um, and, you know, when I tell people, oh, this is shit, like it didn't turn out right, they will go, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. But if I don't say anything, if I just kind of go, okay, this is not how I wanted it to turn out, and, you know, I give it to people to taste and they go, oh, that's awesome because they don't have that expectation in their head of what it should have been in the first place. So it was a really great early example to me, a really, really eye-opening thing 
to to let go of that you know from an early stage and kind of go don't don't be like this tight ass brewer who thinks that everything they do is amazing and it's got to be up to their standards yeah a lot of the time you just got to give the people what they want you know and if people are telling you they like this beer and it's a good beer leave it alone like brew it you know make it um so yeah it was a, it was a nice lesson and i think um i learned a lot from it and it's kind of become very very quickly become part of the journey of of how we design the rest of our beers and how i approached um you know um the other beers that we make that's as 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 david and jacob said yeah that's a great beer story to the point where it totally mm-hmm. overtook i'm not i'm just gonna leave an awkward silence in here just for two <laughs> seconds because yeah, it overtook a lot of the questions I was going to ask, but I'm going to throw in one from, <laughs> it's like, it was terrific. Um, I'm going to throw in one that I saw Mickey ask, because I think that's a nice little little uh, point to do this. Um, going right back to the very beginning, uh, did you ever, did you ever brew that Saison? Uh, yeah, yeah. Brew? yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I can't remember what brew number it was. I could look it up, but it doesn't really matter. Um, probably about the sixth or seventh beer we did um and you know it was i I really wanted to hit a whole bunch of different styles right out of the gate and i kind of had this i had this idea at the time that we weren't going to have a core range that you know every beer was going to be different and you know i might rebrew the same base recipe but completely change out one of the hops you know so i'll brew an ipa and the first ipa had these five hops in it and the next time i brew it i'm going to change it and I thought that might become part of our DNA, you know, part of what made Shambles shambolic and what made it a place to come all the time. You know, it might attract hunters because they'd come in and, and never get the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. But I had this sort of, you know, oh, isn't that a great marketing idea? Isn't that a cool concept for a brewery? Um, but I very, very quickly realised that it's bloody hard to, like, it's hard, it's hard work running a brewery. Um, I was working ridiculous hours. I was brewing all the beer, cleaning the tanks, kegging all, you know, and and paying bills and, you know, kind of assisting with front house and all sorts of stuff. Um, it was hard to have creative energy, you know, mm-hmm. on top of that. So the idea of having to come up with a new recipe every single week um, was actually really stressful. And there's some great comfort in having beers that people want to come back to and be able to just repeat the same recipe. Um and also, like, a lot of people want to come back for that same beer. And I, I kind of got convinced pretty quickly that my that, that business plan concept of just brewing different stuff all the time was actually kind of stupid, that, um, that you were going to alienate a lot of potential loyal customers. I'm sure you might get a bunch of really beer nerds who are really into craft beer who want to come back and have something different every time. But then there's this giant percentage of people who who are going to like something like the summer ale and they're going to come back because they want the summer ale. Yeah. And if I'm a pig-headed brewer that goes, no, you can't have that because, um, you know, because I don't want to do that, mm-hmm. then, you know, it, it's probably a stupid decision. So we very quickly ended up with a core range yeah. of beers that people that were really popular. And then we got to play around the edges with kind of new recipes. Um so sorry, I think I've, I might have missed your question in in all of that. <laughs> oh no, it was no, that was brilliant. No, I was just asking about the saison. Um, yeah, so the yeah, saison. Yeah, so the saison was... was in there. The saison was yeah. one of the early brews, and and back then saisons were kind of trendy and popular, and people mm. actually wanted to drink them. And I loved that because I love saisons. Absolutely love them. 
Um, the disappointing thing for me is that, you know, um, the next summer when we brewed the saison again, it took a, it, it, it sailed slowed a little bit, you know, it took a little bit longer to get through the kegs. And then by the next summer we brewed it again, it became a summer seasonal and, you know, it was not, no one was buying it. Like I, as in it, it was selling really, really slowly to, for the people who were still into saisons, but it was one of those styles that had a bit of a peak back then, sort of, you know, 2015, 20 to 17. Yeah. And kind of just died, just, you know, um, went back into obscurity and you don't really see many of them around anymore. Yeah, yeah, like, I guess like black IPAs, you know, they had a, they had a, they had a period in the sun or in the, Mm -hmm. in the shade. Um, (laughs) Yeah, where, um, where they were super popular and everyone was doing them. And, you know, now there are, there are some really good examples still around, but most breweries aren't bothering and it's, you know, you're onto hazies and you're onto oak creams and you're onto the, the other new trends. Totally. Yeah. Can, can I ask you a quick question, just following up while we've still got a little bit of the afternoon delight left. So in the pack you've provided us with, we also have your session IPA. Now, is that the original recipe or a variation on? No. So, I mean, yes, in the, the malt bill for the, um, not really, because the summer ale malt bill is diff- different. So, so by the time I got around to actually brewing a session IPA, I kind of went, well, I can't just do, I can't just do the original recipe that became summer ale because it'll be too similar. Like that would just be a bit weird to have another centennial citra based beer. That's, you know, slightly higher ABV and a bit more bitter. Mm. So at that point it was sort of like back to the drawing board. And I took the, the concepts of what was in the original session IPA recipe that summer ale was supposed to be um, tweak the malt a little bit, just um, added a little bit of crystal malt that isn't in summer ale to, to kind of give it a tiny little bit of, um, caramel and a little bit of colour to just you know to distinguish it from from somewhere else. Um, originally did it at about five percent, um, and just switched up the hops. Just completely changed the hops. Just had a complete field day playing around with you know hops that I that I was really into at the time. Um, uh, when we went to rebrew it, I decided that five percent was kind of just a bit. I don't know. I wanted to try it at lower ABV. I just wanted it to not. I wanted to have more low ABV offerings to go with the fact that I never ever wanted to change our IPA from 6.4%. Like I just wanted it to, that was, that ended up being the sweet spot for that beer. And I just don't ever want that to change um, because it just works. So I wanted something at the lower end. And I, we did actually do a version of it where I made it a mid strength, the the baggy green Mm -hmm. before it was called baggy green. I did a mid strength that was basically, I didn't tell anybody, it was the same recipe just brought down to three and a half percent. Um, and it didn't work. It just was, it just lacked punch, lacked, lacked, um, you know, what I, what I thought it needed. So I brought it back up to 4.5%, which is where it's, it's at now. So yeah, similar, but, but not quite the same. Yeah. And it makes sense. You want good differentiation. You don't want going, Oh, that tastes a little bit, just a little bit like your other beer. And you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. And, and the idea was to create this range where you're kind of stepping through all the shades, you know, you're going from summer ale, which is like a, you know, light, easy drinking pale ale to something hoppy that's not going to knock you on, on your, you know, um, back because it's, you know, big and bold and bitter and alcoholic um, right through to, we do have a pale ale that's not in cans, right to, you know, standard sort of pale ale in that sort of five-ish, five and a bit percent range, working your way up to an IPA, getting something multi in there with the amber ale, getting something dark there with the, um, the porter so sort of having that spectrum of different flavors for to sort of cater for what people are into um you know whatever mood they're in 
Um, I think we might take the chance to move on to the Tasmanian Raspberry Sale. But before we do, I just, there's one more question, which might be a nice little, little segue to finish off that discussion around you guys and and where you are in the world. Apart from your own uh, brew pub, um, where's where's some other place you like to drink when you're around Hobart? Like where 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 would you um, if you have friends? Where would you take them? So on my couch, um, <laughs> on my deck, um, on my front porch, sometimes <laughs> the bedroom. No, um, I yeah, I don't really get out much anymore. I'm I've, I've become a bit of a recluse. Um, Oh. I, I think since um, you know, I'm going to blame having kids and, you know, COVID and all that kind of stuff. So I don't go out as often as I used to. Um, yeah. But when I do, there are a bunch of really awesome places around Hobart um, and new ones opening all the time. Um, there are some places that kind of opened just before I started Shambles that kind of started championing craft beer. There were the first venues in Hobart to champion craft beer and they're all still around and they're like now the they're now the old guard of, of you know of awesome craft beer places that are just like a must do when you come to Hobart um so if you come to Hobart you've got to go to Preachers you've got to go to the Winston in North Hobart you know they're kind of talked about in Launceston there's St John um so they're the places that you know that I would go to frequently there are a bunch of others too and I don't you know I'm, I'm too many to list there are a lot of other ones um but those are sort of like a, a couple of classic too. Um, and in terms of breweries, like all of them, um, we, we, most, most of us get along really well down here, the brewery mm. kind of um, scene. Um, we tend to visit each other a lot. We, we lend each other ingredients when we're running out. We collaborate on beers and stuff. Um, so yeah, spent a lot of time down at Hobart Brewing Co. Uh, T-Bone's only like a couple of blocks away from us. Um, uh, new brewery um, around the block again called Deep South. That's um, run by a friend of mine, Dave, who used to be head brewer at Moo Brew. Yep. Um, and yeah, then sort of further afield, there's a bunch of awesome, you know, breweries everywhere around Hobart. It's just growing and growing and growing. There's another one that's just opened in North Hobart recently called Overland. I haven't been to yet, but it's it's exploding. And when we opened Shambles, the question that was kind of asked was, oh no, look at all, because about six or seven breweries opened the same year as us. And they were, the question was like, oh, no, is this is this sustainable? You know, can Hobart, you know, such a small population handle this many breweries? Are they going to go under? Yep. It, hasn't, it hasn't stopped, you know, six years later, and it's just exponential. There's more and more and more um, statewide. And, it, and it's proved my answer to the question at the time was like absolutely. Like you're talking about a handful of breweries fighting for 3% of the market and you're trying to tell me that there's no room for more? There is, if we all work together and make that 3%, 5, then 6, then 7, then 8, then 9, then 10. If we can convert more beer drinkers, um, there's plenty of people drinking beer out there. We've only scratched the surface. So, you know, um, there are some awesome, awesome things happening in the beer scene everywhere. But, yeah, what you're seeing everywhere else is definitely happening here too. Can I ask a quick question just on the sustainability of multiple breweries in Hobart? I, mm-hmm. I imagine the um, mass movement of people from places like Victoria and New South Wales to Hobart, and I know your property markets exploded well before COVID and everyone wanted to work from home somewhere nice. Do you feel, and even for me, I've been visiting there almost every year for a few years, and then I had a few years gap and I went and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of money in Hobart now. There's a lot of expensive mm. shops and I thought yeah. that that's got to help, you know, you know, more premium things. 
things like a nice craft beer. Do, do, do you think that's really adding to the scene for you? Definitely. And it's not, it's not just beer. It's, you know, we, we've had a, a long, like decades, decades, we've had a reputation for wine, obviously, and food um, in general, but it was always Tassie wine, Tassie wine. That's the main thing you sort of talked about. And then suddenly, you know, Bill, Bill Lark started Lark Distillery and suddenly whiskey started to become a thing in Tassie and now that's exploded. Um, and then, you know, cider, beer, it's, it's just a natural progression of people kind of just society in general, um, getting more and more into um you know a smaller um more more crafted things for want of a better word you know for of, of wanting to go and buy their stuff from the people who make it you know and not just go to large department stores and supermarkets and to get to get their produce um so it's that growth of that whole thing and it's just it, it's just not stopping because because i think it's a movement it's become a you know, a, a society-wide thing that more and more people are caring where their things come from. You know, they're, they're you know, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s and, you know, back then, you know, we, I would never have known where my clothes were made, you know. I would not have a concept of what a sweatshop was or, you know, um, the, the and, and the same thing with food, you know. You kind of, everyone just went to the supermarket to get their, their food and you didn't really have, you know, you, mainstream farmers markets and things like that so the growth of all that stuff is just part and parcel with what's happening with 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 breweries and definitely there's more money in Hobart there's cooler venues there's there's flashier fancier venues where money's seriously been spent now a lot of that is connected to the opening of Mona and Dark Mofo was a festival I think um you know what David Walsh has done for our state as a whole cannot be um you know underestimated it's it's you know, it's it's made a huge difference to everybody, um, whether you know it or not. Like Hobart has changed because of, um, you know, that organisation. Um, so I really want to circle back to uh, the Mona and Dark Mofo, but just because we're getting on in the hour a bit, um, yes. we should probably move on to the next beer just so people are already yes. probably on it and while they maybe still have some left. So this Indeed. is your Tasmanian Raspberry Sour. Um, yes. I, I must admit, when I opened it, I got a little bit of a fizz on the finger and licked it. I went, "Whoa!" It's just you know, I can really taste the raspberries. It was great. So you know, what 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 sort of things should we be tasting in this beer? You know, if you can take us on a little tour of the beer, please. Raspberries and acid. That's basically it. And I don't mean the drug kind. <laughs> not raspberries on acid. <laughs> raspberries on acid. Um, yeah, it's it's um, basically just you know, super tangy and tart um, and and sharp, but but um with that big fruity hit from raspberries um we have experimented with a few sours over the years um and yeah finally sort of gotten to a point where i'm really happy with our base recipe for them and have finally been able to get enough good tassie grown berries at the right time to do them the way that i've wanted to so um this one I think this might be the first one that we've gotten right, as in to my liking. Like the, the, they've all been popular because people are into sours. Um, this is probably the first one where I've kind of like, you know, it's come out the other end and it's been how I kind of imagined it. Um, having said that, I have actually, we did actually do another batch of this because our kegs ran out before the cans. So we did do a second batch of this beer and I did tweak the recipe a little bit for the second batch. Um, so it is slightly better again, I think, <laughs> um, and we're going to keep sticking with that. So, what, how did you? Yeah. What did what did you 
do to tweak the recipe? Like, what was the? Um, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, you know, don't mind sharing, and you know, complete complete honesty, right? So I'm I'm quite happy to to tell you to tell you when I've fucked up. <laughs> um, the um the original recipe when we first did a fruited sours last year, I, I was out of season. Like I I, well, I hadn't thought far enough ahead to be able to get pasi berries. Um, so I couldn't get anything that I wanted at the time. And so we had to sort of find imported berries from, from interstate. Um, and even then, like you couldn't get anything that wasn't frozen. So we used um, berry concentrate. So it was from real berries, but it was, you know, um, evaporated down to a concentrate. And that stuff is, you know, in its raw form is super sweet and really flavorful. But once you dilute it in a beer and the sugar ferments out, it, not a lot's left. You miss a lot from the contact with with the pulp and the, the skins and stuff. So those original recipes were very tangy. The color was beautiful, but the fruit flavor wasn't quite there. So I really, really wanted to work with Tassie fruit. And, and this is sort of the first one where we got to do that properly. Um, and the original recipe, the one that you've got, um, we stuffed up and I didn't, I didn't, we rebrewed the original recipe and I just stupidly forgot to account for the fact that um, the concentrate is really, really sweet. So it's a five to one concentrate. And when you put, you know, 25 litres in, it's it's the equivalent of 125 litres of Sugar. juice, mm. but you don't get that dilution. So when it ferments out, you get a you get a significant increase in ABV, right? So with the recipe was designed around a 2.5% barley you know it's like the malt to contribute 2.5 percent and for that the fermented fruit to contribute the other 0.5 percent to make it three percent mm -hmm. um and when we when we brewed that one and had the berries in we forgot to adjust so we still brewed it as a 2.5 percent beer but of course when you add 200 liters of berry in there you're adding sugar but also water um and so you don't end up with the rise in alcohol that you would get from concentrate so this actually ended up being um, 2.7, I think it ended up being, um, not 3. So we had the labels printed, the can say 3%, but it was actually 2.7%. And for me, it was noticeable. And maybe it's psychosomatic because I knew that had happened. So by the time I tasted it, I was already in my head going, this is going to be thin. And then I tasted it and went, it's a little thin. Yeah. So it didn't quite have the body that I wanted on it. Um, it's got the fruit flavour, the aroma's great, the tang's there but the ABV is a little low and the residual sugars, it's a little dry. So it didn't quite, it didn't quite have the body to hold up the fruit. So when we rebrewed it, we fixed that. We made sure that we accounted for that and made it, you know, made sure it finished at 3% and finished it. Um, I think it finished at 10, 10 or 10 or 12 or something like that in, in terms of residual sugar. So it's got a little bit, it's not sweet, but it's got a little that bit of that residual sweetness on the back end that you probably don't notice, but it does make it feel a little bit more full bodied. So the current batch in kegs is, I think, for me, more what I wanted to make the first time. So, yeah. Well, it's certainly a full flavour. It was sort of something we were going to ask about how you get this big, big hit of flavour. So it's really good. Yeah, answer. it's just just good berries. And and Tassie's <clears throat> got some great, great food and great farms around the place. And the place where everyone in Tassie knows of Westaway Raspberry Farm. Um, and that's you know the place to go to get to get some um, good berries and. Um, yeah, we got the raspberries from them. We're about to do a second one. We're going to do a blackberry. Um, so that'll be that'll be brewed next week. So it'll be a few weeks away um, for that one to be ready. And we're basically going to repl replicate. Same base recipe, just use blackberries this time. 
Um, and yeah, um, we've got we've got a couple of other we've we've got a you know four different fruits we're going to use throughout the rest of the year to to keep these being like seasonal sours. Um, I when you said it's like raspberries and acid, you you kind of think well that's the first thought is oh that kind of sounds a bit boring, but then when you taste it, it's amazing the the kind of the complexity you get from the raspberry like i think there's more layers to that raspberry i think it presents really well on this beer yeah i agree and the the um the thing that stood out for me the most was i was so glad that the aroma held up like that you know when we put when we had the raspberries and we actually were putting them in the beer we're like this smells amazing i hope that doesn't go away um yeah. you know in the final beer and it and it did sort of stay there you can you do get that kind of hit um yeah, so I think yeah, people who are into sours and more and more people are, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of it's kind of hit that that mainstream sour. It's obviously not a funky barnyard, you know, kind of like wild fermented sour. It's it's meant to be a mainstream, you know. This is like a this is like a don't don't bother drinking cider, just drink this. Um, <laughs> it's a you know like this is this is in in that kind of acid territory um, for people who who like those those tart flavors. So, Warren, I might ask a question uh, about the this beer in terms of what might go well, but food-wise. You oh, guys yeah. have obviously got a great brew pub going on. You're dishing out a lot of good dishes. Do you have something you'd like to match with this? Um, oh, look, pretty pretty much anything, um, for me, anything sort of fatty or oily, um, the sour just cuts through that really, really well and, and kind of plays well in that space. Now, we don't, like, when I say fatty or oily, I don't mean, like, you know, greasy goop drip, dripping off stuff. Mm. I just mean like, um, you know, simple things like, you know, fried chicken, like popcorn chicken, um, uh, you know, something like that that's been deep fried but but is crispy and has a bit of salt and flavour to it. The um, For me, the sour works beautifully with those sorts of dishes. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a few things on our menu that kind of are in that sort of space where the flavours are a bit, fuller and you know the sauces might be a bit more um punchy and flavorful and yeah the sour kind of works well with that so uh one of our uh, audience members a long time attendee uh mugs he has a question uh a more technical question about your raspberry beer did you want to unmute mugs and uh throw the question or two questions out there yeah thank thank <coughs> thanks jacob um yeah um my question is more what the sort of the base beer of the construct of the base beer for, for this um, raspberry mm-hmm. beer is and um, whether you use a souring agent like yeast or kettle sour mm-hmm. or bacteria. Yep. For- um, so the base recipe is obviously really simple because the fruit does the work. Like it's, it's the base, the base recipe pretty much has to create sugar and mouthfeel. Um, to give us our ABV, um, we it, it's not designed to be a particularly malty beer, so it's pretty much all pale malt with a little bit of um, carapils. I, I tend to use carapils a lot in most beers for for added like you know head retention, um, and and body and sort of mouthfeel, and um, a little bit of acidulated malt to um, to basically get our pH down before we do any other souring. So just adding a bit of acidulated malt as part of the malt bill starts you off, um, you know, in the low fives um, 
in terms of pH, you feel, you know, if you go overboard, maybe, maybe just below five before any other bacteria or yeast has to do the rest of the work. So a little bit of acidulated. And in the second recipe, not the one you're drinking, but the one that we rebrewed, I decided that we, it, it needed a bit of oats. We added a little bit of oats to the recent brew, just again, to, to give it a little bit of mouthfeel. I wanted something underneath that raspberry flavor that kind of gave it a bit more of a full body. Um, the original rest sours we brewed over the years were always proper kettle sours. Um, so traditional sort of kettle sours. Um, we experimented with a couple of different methods, but my favorite was to use acidulated malt, um, which basically is malt that's been soured naturally with lactobacillus. So, you know, it comes to you from the factory, you know, in a bag, and it is basically just a lactobacillus, you know, packed colony. You know, there's just heaps of lactobacillus in it. Um, so we, the first kettle sours we did, we did it the proper proper way, traditional way um, of, uh, well, there's a few different ways, obviously you can do sour mashes or whatever, but um, the, when I say proper, I mean the proper, the most common modern way, um, is, which is to, you know, get your wort from the fermenter, from the mash tun into the kettle, pull it down to the right temperature for lactobacillus to do its thing, and then inoculate with some form of lactobacillus. Now, some brewers will buy a pure lactobacillus um, pitch. Um, some will use yogurt um, that, you know, that's got particular strains of lactobacillus. I know people that have used probiotic tablets, like I know brewers that have literally like opened probiotic pills um, and put the powder in as a lactobacillus. Oh, hold on. Have you, have you tasted the result of any yep. of those? Yes. And yep. It worked? Right. Yep. Absolutely. Um, right. Because, well, because, because, um, because those, yeah, you're Same thing. Like yeah. any, any kind of, you know, the, the probiotic tablets have to specifically say on them that they've got, you know, lactobacillus yeah. um, in them. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, many, many yogurts, not all will work. Some have been, you know, um, heat treated or whatever, but um, many, you know, common supermarket yogurts will do, but they do give you a bit of a dairy kind of flavour. But the simplest one for us that we really liked was just grabbing some acidulated malt and sticking it in a sanitized bag, like 10 kilos of acidulated malt, and literally suspending that in the kettle overnight. Well, for, for two, two to three days, actually, um, with the kettle held constant at about 45 degrees. So, you know, the, the, per, the, the right temperature for lactobacillus to grow and, and not a great temperature for other things. Um, and that way you kind of just leave it, check the pH, taste it, check the pH, taste it over several days. Uh -huh. um, and it's cheap. Like, you know, we you bag of acidulated malt, you put some of it in the mash and, you know, hold back 10 kilos of it to stick in the kettle and away you go. Um, and then, then we switched to using a shop bought, like a pre-bought pro brewers, you know, bag pouch of lactobacillus culture. You can actually buy um, basically dried lactobacillus like yeast. Um, it's called Sour Pitch um, by Lalamand, and we used that in a few because it was a little bit um, a little bit worried about, you know, putting the malt in there. You, there's other stuff that's growing in that malt as well. It's not a pure culture. You know, the chances of something going wrong are quite high. So buying the, you know, clean pitch was the next way we went. And then this amazing invention came out, um, which is uh, Philly Sour yeast, which I'm sure everyone's heard of. <laughs> 
and we um yeah we, we we tried one with that we'd heard mixed things about it you know not not getting um low enough in ph you know it's sort of crapping out at about you know 5.6 some sorry um what am i saying um uh you know some sometimes not getting much below um uh sort of like mid mid to low um threes but not not getting as low as you you might want in a really tart sort of sour um but yeah we started using that and it just worked out of the box just was producing great clean ferments um you know great great souring great ph drop and kind of was like we don't have to keep it in the kettle for three days we can just brew a normal beer and then add this stuff to it and ferment it like a normal beer this is amazing um and yeah look I haven't done a side-by-side -side with both methods at the same time. Like it was sort of my memory of having brewed the last one and comparing it. But for me, there's not really much discernible difference between the two. And it's just so much easier using Philly Sour. It's just an amazing thing. I, I love it. I love, I love that. I love that they found it in the bark of some tree. Um, I love that, you know, that they've cultured it and found that it does this stuff and someone's gone, Hmm, there's this weird thing that kind of ferments beer, but also produces, you know, that also acts like lactobacillus. Um, and they've, you know, someone's thought this is great. It's got an application. Let's commercialize it. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's really awesome modern innovation. That's a great answer. So, so Warren, did you want to throw to the traditional cool room question? Oh yeah. <laughs> I was thinking let's, let's say hello to David Griffiths who has just returned from his his grand meeting, his grand council meeting, um, and I think we had like seven fifteen was the time that he got back in. So anyone who had seven fifteen, uh, well done. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, welcome Warren. back, David. Thanks for letting me be on board. No, no, no. Thank you both. You're both doing magnificently. I was going to have a chat with everyone during the break. So. Continue to steer the ship, my friends. Well, yeah, let's let's steer the ship. But I thought you might be good at asking the traditional cool room question from from Cornell. I am very happy to do that, having returned from my meeting where I was accused of public toilet skullduggery. So there you go. <laughs> it's been a it's been a fun and eventful night. Uh, Cornell, thank you so much for being here. I get to ask my favourite question, which is our traditional cool room question, which is what's the most confronting or strange or amusing thing you've seen in a cool room? But really, this is just about pulling back the curtain. So it might be in a brewery or something like those lines as well. We love a good explosion story. We've already had the, uh, I left the, uh, I left one of the valves open stories. So that takes out one of the usual contenders. Um, so in a cool room specifically or just in a brewery in general? Either or, my friend, either or. Uh, I was thinking it was in terms of actually in a cool room, and that's a pretty easy one. Um, we keep our yeast brinks in the cool room, which is um, the, the brewery um, The breweries in the warehouse with, like, a public space around it. So there's basically a big table and table tennis table and, you know a little function a little back bar for functions and stuff we use it as a function room but it's open to the public whenever our venue's open and there's a cool room um in the middle of the building basically so the bar staff use it to store kegs and wine and you know soft drinks and stuff the kitchen use it to store 
um, you know, their, their ingredients and, you know, cool storage food. And the brewers um, put, you know, wheel the yeast bring in there on a trolley. And, yeah, I think probably the most confronting thing was when one of the kitchen staff was moving things around and accidentally bumped the valve on the bottom of the yeast brink <laughs> and knocked it off and basically a big old yeast slurry explosion from a, you know, pressurised yeast brink. Um, I think it took them quite a while to, to clean that up. <laughs> so I think that's probably my, yeah, my favourite one about, you know, it's kind of like share housing, you know, the bar staff and the kitchen staff and the brewery staff all have to use the same bathroom. Um, and yeah, this time it was, <laughs> yeah, basically. So you have yeah. like a house strain now. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. We just scooped it up off the floor and that's how we make our sours. <laughs> uh, uh, no, no, we were just, yeah, we just basically cropped from our tanks, keep them in the yeast brink and repitch um, into batches the next day or, you know, the day after so yeah that was that's probably the the, the funnest cool room explosion story that i've got wow. that's pretty impressive now just uh when we were starting this beer you were, you were talking about dark mofo and uh, i was wondering um if you'd want to maybe expand on that in terms of how you engage with such an epic arts festival going on to do with mona the museum of old and new artists for our listeners uh which is a phenomenal uh gallery uh and whether you actually brew any special beers for it or, you know, try and tie in that way. Yeah, so there's a few things. I mean, everyone in Hobart, like every business wants to tap into it somehow. We all want to touch it. You know, we all want to be associated with it. So, you know, um, everyone does little things. I mean, the, the most obvious one was that, you know, from year one, they sort of encouraged businesses around town the first year that they did it when everyone didn't know even what the hell this was going to be. It's just, we're having a, we're having a midwinter arts festival. And in Hobart, this is like nine years ago, no one went out in winter, like venues were dead. They had to survive winter with no revenue basically to get through to summer to make their money, you know? Um, and you would often see, you know, restaurants start in summer, open up and be dead before the next summer. You know, they just couldn't make it through the winter. Um, and suddenly they had this thing where, you know, like the, like the city was packed. It was like a summer's day in the middle of a freezing cold winter night um, with amazing weird art, confronting art, fun art, you know, that kind of stuff. One of the early things they did was to encourage everybody to basically go red. So just, just pull out your light bulbs and swap them for red. Um, so a lot of businesses, you know, are lit up red for the week um, or the two weeks now which is a nice touch. It sort of makes the whole city feel like it's part of it. Um, and then there's a bunch of fringe stuff that goes on. Like we've, you know, there've been some art installations where someone's done like a, you know, a series of, of art pieces spread throughout the city and tied it to like an app and digital stuff. And we were one of the venues for that. Every year there's a um, winter feast. There's basically a giant warehouse on the waterfront where the Taste of Tasmania Festival has been held for decades um, and they decided to make a winter version of that and have this sort of, you know, dark themed, you know, red crosses, neon, people dressed up as centaurs, um, uh, you know, in the middle of, of winter and obviously getting a stall at that is a real, you know, like it's a real win if you can, if you get invited to have a stall at that and we've been involved, lucky, luckily, lucky enough to be involved in that um, a few times. Um, so, yeah, and whenever... Yeah, whenever that comes around, usually if we're at the feast, we'll do a we'll do a beer. 
um, you know, we'll try and do, we'll do a seasonal. Um, and what has kind of become our tradition for the last three years um, that we did again this year, that's our sort of dark mofo tie-in is that we're right next, one of our neighbours like down the back behind the brewery, um, there's a little warehouse um, and we're great friends with Zimmer Coffee, so coffee roasters. Um, and they roast amazing coffee. You know, that's where we get our daily coffees. Um, and a few years ago, I started putting it in a stout and made a coffee stout with them. And every year we kind of, you know, they, they roast a different bean. They, you know, we play with flavours and stuff. So over a year we do a coffee stout and it has tended to tie in with Dark Mofo. So we launched it at our stall at Dark Mofo this year. collaboration. Wow. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, I must have. I haven't had that one and I, I love coffee stouts. So I'm, I'm totally on board for that. It's it's canned. We're just waiting on labels, so I'll send you some when we're oh, when it's done. Thank you. Um, so you've been very generous with your time so far. We've still got one more beer we want to interrogate you about, but we maybe want to stop for a break. Just yep. let everyone stretch their legs and get to the facilities and get fresh beers, although hopefully they already had their porter out, depending on how they like it served. Well, while the guys in the Zoom room have a little break, let me use that as an opportunity to politely remind you to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, if you haven't already done so, just click subscribe on whatever platform you grab the podcast on, uh, and that way you can make sure that you never miss an episode. Uh, we don't want you to be missing out, and that's just the way that we can make sure that you get each one. And if you're following us on Facebook and Instagram, then you can find out in advance about which beers you need to have with you, and uh, obviously buy them from our Shopify if you wish to do that as well. Okay, with that little advertisement over, let's get back into the show. Um, yeah, welcome back, everyone, uh, after our break, uh, if that's not edited out. Uh, so we're starting now on the Robust Porter. And um, again, with this beer, we'd like to sort of understand what's the sort of the flavours you're trying to impart here. But I'm just going to throw a bit another question in here, and it might be a bit naive, but... It's a robust porter. What makes a robust porter? Is it just a bit of branding or is there something you really have to do to call no, it a robust it is, porter? It, I mean, it is a defined style um, of beer. And, um, you know, so if, you, if you're into your style guidelines and you sort of care about that stuff, um, you know, it does exist as a, as a style. Um, and really it's kind of, um, you know, it's that whole kind of connection between porters and stouts. Um, obviously, you know, um, that, you know, Porter was that sort of original traditional sort of dark English beer. Um, obviously every brewery had their own interpretation and would have had, you know, some that were sort of lighter in alcohol, some of them were, you know, stronger in alcohol, the stronger, roastier, you know, bigger flavored ones became called stout porters. Um, and then the, you know, the, the Porter bit was dropped and they became stouts. But then there was sort of this hole in between for, you know, strong porters that aren't quite stouts. Um, so for me, a robust porter, um, and we brewed, you know, like as a home brewer over the years, brewed heaps and heaps of different styles, didn't particularly care necessarily about, you know, what kind of porter it was. Um, but my favourite porter recipe that we brewed was one that was higher in alcohol, um, more full-bodied, more flavourful, um, had a lot of different things going on, a lot of complexity, and wasn't, you know, kind of your just typical um, light porter. And so when it came to sort of commercialising it and, you know, trying to, I guess, communicate to customers that, you know, if you say porter, there's a certain expectation, you know, and most porters I, I, I would think, you know, sort of would sit somewhere between five, five and a half percent. 
that if you've got something that's sitting up around six, um, then just call it, calling it a porter might be kind of not really communicating that well with your customers about what to expect when they drink the beer. Um, so for me, kind of looking up, you know, realizing that robust porter is a thing is actually an existing style. And this fits into that category. It's a nice thing to sort of be able to call it, call it what it is and, and give it a name, a style name that actually fits what you're tasting in the glass. So for me, a robust porter is, it's not a stout. So you don't want a whole lot of roast flavor in there. You don't want to go too far down that, um, you know, you know, burnt, um, burnt toasts, you know, you don't want any kind of licorice or any of that kind of, you know, um, that those sorts of flavors that might be associated with some stouts. Um, you want it to be chocolatey. Um, well, I do. I want it to be chocolatey. I want it to be um, rounded. And I want to have like, I want to be able to pick out a whole bunch of different flavors in there. So um, there's a heap of malts in this one. I think it's like, like eight different malts in this beer. Um, basically a range of different crystal malts. So, you know, um, a, a medium crystal and a dark crystal. Um, there's um, chocolate malts and then there's carafa, which is a um, de-husked dark, dark malt that basically, so you don't get the that burnt astringency that you get from roasted barley. So you get a lot of the colour, but you get something that's, yeah, very chocolatey with sort of, dark toffee and a bit of caramel underneath all of that all kind of blending together to give you this um yeah full-bodied but not overly um acrid you know you don't get a lot of those sort of sharp flavors that you might in in some big stouts um there's some i mean there's obviously the those dark malts still give you like coffee notes in there so a lot of people will pick out coffee like i don't get a lot of coffee out of our porter but i've had plenty of people go oh it tastes like coffee i'm like interesting people's palates are different so um i think what i like about it is that um i don't i think i've you know when i've asked people to describe what they're tasting i don't often get the same answer twice um and I quite like that. I like that it's complex enough that that different palates are picking up different things from the range of malts that are in there. Um, on on well, moving away a little bit from the malts, uh, the 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 kind of the partner with that with hops. How do the what hops have you used, and how do they kind of play a part in this beer? Um, we experimented a little bit with that from the original recipe. Um, I didn't write really like what I'd put in there. I think I started with Chinook. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it was sort of a bit sharp. I didn't really like how it blended with the malt. So I started experimenting with a few different things. I think I tried Amarillo um, and I ended up landing on Ella, um, which is a local hop. Um, I really wanted to have, um, because Tassie, you know, we grow a lot of hops in Tassie and you know, we have a great relationship with the hop farms, um, with the hop, um, hop Products Australia, um, who run the farms at Bushy Park. Um, which is, you know, it's basically drive an hour and, you know, um, out of an hour and a half out of Hobart and you're in the hop fields. Um, and, you know, their office is just up the road from us. So we can literally drive five minutes to pick up hops out of their cool room. Um, and it's, it's sort of great using a product that you know has only gone from, you know, um, an hour away to a cool room up the road to your beer. Um, so that's really nice. So... We try really hard to use a lot of those hops in a range of beers. Um, and this was a great opportunity to sort of pick a beer where the hops weren't the key. You know, it was a malt-driven malt beer, but 
to find a local hop that actually fit in really well with it um, and to be really happy with that, not just using it because it happens to be local, um, but actually because it really does contribute to the flavour. So Ella can do different things depending on how you use it in beer. And um, for me in this beer, it kind of contributes this sort of nice warm bitterness that's not overpowering um, and a little bit of a sort of a, like an earthy fruitiness that works well with the malt. Um, we don't use a lot of hops in it. So it's not, you know, well, when I say that, you need, when you make a robust porter, when you make a, a more flavorful beer, if you leave the hops out entirely, you kind of you kind of end up missing this big part of the flavor spectrum. So you do tend to have to, um, you know, pump in some more BUs to kind of give, you know, the, the, you, you don't notice hop bitterness as much when you've got all these other flavors going on. So you do tend to have to kind of like put in a little bit, a bit of, um, a little bit more hop to kind of work with the malt. Um, so it's not a it's not an over the top hopped beer, but there's enough in there that it is contributing um, some of that sort of vague um, underlying fruitiness that to me almost gives it like um, like if you're kind of talking about those sort of um, chocolate toffee kind of notes, it plays in that same sort of space. Like I, I think if you took it out, you'd notice it, um, but when it's in there, you might mistake it for malt. But there is a bit of hop fruitiness in there that kind of plays with that toffee to almost give it like a bit of a raisiny kind of note, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's sort of hard to, it's hard. Yeah. I, I, I would, I'd love to do an experiment where you just brew the exact same beer and took all the hops out and had it next to it to sort of say, say, you know, to someone, yeah. see, this is what the hops are doing. Um, because they, they can kind of feel like they're getting lost in mm. the rest but they are, they're in there and they are part of that flavor profile. So um, touching on something you said earlier about sourcing the hops locally, do you, are you able to source many local ingredients for your beers? Like do you access malts as well as hops or any other even like, you know, bush um, ingredients or anything like that? Yeah. So there's, I mean, malt is an interesting one. There is um, like there's a maltster um, there. We do grow barley and do malt barley in Devonport. Um, one of the major um, suppliers, you know, um, nationwide joe white maltings has a plant or cargill they have a plant in devonport um and we've experimented with a bunch of different malts but um i wasn't a big fan um so we we basically stopped using their malt um a couple of years in we had a few bad batches um of malt that just weren't the right spec they didn't perform well in the brew house we had a yeah, I won't go into it because I don't, you know, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. But we had a couple of experiences where we thought mm, that's not quite the quality that we want. So we started using a different brand mm. um, and haven't really gone back to it. So, yeah, um, familiar story of some brewers, you know, like they want to try and use local where possible. But if the quality yeah. is not good enough, they have to think of the quality of their beers first, you know. That's right. And I know that there are a lot of brewers who want to use locally sourced ingredients and that's really commendable and i like i'm into that i think it's great but for me as a brewer in terms of the beer i want to make it's too limiting like if we only used hops that were grown at bushy park you know in all of our beers we're just missing such a range of potential flavors from the amazing hops that are grown around the world um and i don't want to be limited in the kinds of flavors i can get in the you know the beers we can brew so um we do where we can where it makes sense so there are some beers where you know, like, I mean, Galaxy's a ubiquitous hop now and it's, you know, um, grown up, up the road. So 
you know, we can put Galaxy in a beer and say we're supporting local, but, you know, so is everyone else in the world now because it's such a, fa a famous, you know, such a um, sought-after hop. Um, but, you know, of the range of things that they, they grow up there, they've all got their place. They, you know, they work well in different, um, in different parts of the brew and in different styles of beer. So wherever those hops make sense, we use them. Um, one of my favourite things um, to do with local hops, because um, like I said, we've got a really great relationship with, um, with HPA, um, is that they, um, when at harvest time, they obviously let, they put the call out to brewers and say, you can have some green hops, you know, at harvest time. So you can have, you know, you can make wet hop, hopped beers, fresh hopped beers um, with undried, freshly picked hops. Um, which are always great, always an amazing, like you never know what quite what you're going to get because it's, you know, you get batch, you get year to year variation. You might try different hot combos or whatever. Um, and so you're always making something interesting that, that kind of is a blip on the radar. Like it exists once and you can never replicate it because you literally can't get that exact same, you know, um, bunch of hot flowers again because they haven't been dried and blended and all the rest. Yeah. Um, so it's been, yeah. And, and obviously a lot of breweries, do that because they they do that in victoria as well like everywhere they grow hops they offer that to the brewers um but one thing we started doing a few years ago is i kind of i didn't like what they were offering like they they basically offered the same four hops that we'd used you know that everyone sort of used for years so there wasn't really a lot of variety out there um and we have always always at harvest time when we brew a wet hop beer it's always been a the pale boring pale ale recipe like a boring standard American pale ale kind of base, you know, 5%, um, you know, pale malt, a little bit of crystal, USO5, like nothing special about that. Because for me, the entire point of brewing those beers is to see what the hops are going to do, find out, you know, what are this year's, you know, fresh hops going to taste like and smell like. Um, so the beer kind of needs to get out of the way and let the hops do their thing. Um, and so, yeah, a couple of years ago, I just sort of reached out to our sales guy and said, have you got anything new that, you know, you might have a little trial crop of that we might be able to just get 20 kilos of? Um, and he was like, well, do I have some good news for you? We've got this, this new hop that we think is going to be the next, you know, the successor to Galaxy and um, um, you can have some. And it's called, you know, it's codenamed HPAO16 and, you know, yep, you can have 20 kilos of that this year. I'm like, awesome. So we got to put this experimental hop that no one else got huh. um, into, into our beer and kind of go, ha-ha, we got to use the experimental one. Um, and a couple of years later, that's now been commercialised. It's called Eclipse. It's, they've done a big launch of it. Oh, wow. it's, like it's a great, yeah, and, and we got to be one of the first breweries in the, in the world to brew with this hop when it hadn't even been pelletized yet, you know, all they had was a trial plot of it in plant form, in wet hop form. Um, and I loved it. We, we basically like I completely changed our pale ale recipe because of that brew decided to use, once they pelletized it, started using it in, um, in our pale ale because it's such a cool hop. Um, and since that year, the last two years, I've done the same thing. I've sort of sneakily said, what have you got this year that's experimental, Owen? And, um, yeah, we've been lucky enough to be kind of gifted another new thing, another new hop that they're kind of doing trial plots of that might eventually in five years' time be commercialised. Um, that's been really fun. And this year's one, we got two experimental varieties that I can't remember. Again, they're just numbers on a page. They don't have names yet. Um, they had really cool descriptors in terms of their flavour profile. Um, I ordered a shit ton, like we got 
you know, twice as much as what we would normally put in and completely overhop this pale ale with these two experimental hops. And I think it's one of the, I genuinely think it's one of the best beers we've ever made. Like, wow. um, so you know, do, you, come... do you flag these beers that you've put something that no one else has had in or do you have to keep it secret when people drink no, it? It's not, no, not really. I mean, we, 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 we didn't can it. Like we, you know, we kind of, um, you know, it's only single batch. So, you know, so like 20, 20, 24 kegs or something. It's not a lot, you know, our distributors, you know, take half of them straight away and send them out to pubs around the state. And then we kind of end up with, I think um, this time around, but it sold out in two weeks. And I think our bar had ended up with only four of those kegs because it was just so popular. So we, we only got to tap it at our own bar for like two weeks. Um, and so, yeah, we sort of, you know, on social media say, Hey, this is our experimental pale ale again this year with, you know, with fresh hopped these two varieties here are the flavor notes or whatever. There's kind of not, not a lot of point making a big deal about it and, you know, doing sponsored posts on Facebook because it's gone in two weeks, you know, it's kind of here and then it's gone. So for us, it's just kind of like a fun thing to do. Um, but yeah, this is sort of the first time we've ever done one where I've genuinely been mad when it's run out. I'm like, fuck, I only got to have like, you know, a couple of pints over the last couple of weeks and now it's gone. Uh, um, so yeah, that was really cool. And that's, you know, that's, probably my favorite use of a local ingredient is actually something that's specific to beer. You know, it, it makes, it makes beer. It, it's, you know, it's what we love and it's new and it's exciting and it's different. And, you know, it's not, it's not local in like, you know, heaps of people will have used pepperberries, you know, Tasmanian pepperberries in beer. You know, it's cool. It's a cool, um, you know, um, fruit, herb um, can, can do some fun things flavor wise. Um, and that's kind of cool. And people might use, other kind of you know native plants or native ingredients um but I've, I've just never really been into that me it's just not me like i don't i don't i don't care enough about that you know experimenting with weird funky flavors the scientist in me wants to experiment with cool versions of the stuff that's meant to be in beer so you know cool new hops that's i'm into that that's great I would say if you had like a beer club in Melbourne for, you know, exclusive new hops in beers, it'd be the most hotly contested club out there, I feel. But um, yep. yeah, uh, obviously the, the units you can move, it's it's limited because you don't have a lot, but yeah. So yeah. No, oh, right. now, were, there, were there other brewers around Hobart who had more pints of it than you did? Probably, I don't know. Yeah, I mean... No, I, I'm just wondering if, yeah, they got around it. I didn't, like, I, yeah. didn't, I, didn't I didn't realise... I didn't realize that it was sort of selling out like, you know, like I'll have a, you know, a pint at our bar, you know, yeah. um, one afternoon or whatever. And then, you know, like next week I might have another one. And, you know, normally sort of three weeks later, if I, another, if I want another one, I can. <laughs> and this was sort of one of those ones where I'm like, Hey, why isn't the fresh hop on the menu anymore? Oh yeah. We sold out. Like, Shit. Yeah. <laughs> can, can I ask uh, a question back on your porter? So, yes. you know, this this is obviously a great winter beer, great fireside beer, especially, you know, the dark mofo times of dead of winter and Tassie. Do you mm-hmm. have this on offer year round, however, because Tassie can always be a bit cool, or do you just bring it out for winter? No, we do, actually. We, um, um, it obviously it's seasonal, like it will go up and down. Um, you know, we, we get a spike in sales of the porter in winter and it drops off in summer, but it's never dropped off to the point where we wouldn't brew it. So, um, you know, even in, even in summer, it's still ticking over mostly in can. So, you know, keg sales of it drop off because a lot of people going out to pubs are going out on warm nights and down at the waterfront and stuff and dark beers just don't sell very well. 
Um, but you know, the, but in package, like in bottle shops, it's still doing okay in summer. So there's sort of no reason to stop brewing it, you know, and make it and make it, you know, seasonal because um, it still sells in summer. And the same with the summer ale, to be honest. Like it's coming full circle back to that, you know, that that off the cuff decision of going. I don't know what this beer is. It doesn't fit into any style guideline. I'm going to call it a summer ale, hmm. um, which was an offhand decision I made for the very first beer we put through our brewery that was meant to run out in two weeks or three weeks, and then I'd fix it and brew the session IPA, never to be seen again. Has now ended up being a core range beer for the last six years. We're stuck with it, and it's called summer ale, and literally because it's called summer ale its sales become seasonal um it's amazing the psychology the beer doesn't change between summer and winter people are still drinking heaps of pale ales in winter and they're drinking you know session ipas and they're drinking beers that are functionally identical to our summer ale but because it's got summer on the can because it's got summer in the name like a lot of people will walk up to the same bar they go to all year round and it might be their favorite beer in summer and they'll go mm, no i'll have something else because it's winter it's so weird um, it really does. So uh, we've accidentally created a seasonal pale ale um, that wasn't, you know, that hasn't, for no, there's no reason it should be, you know. But on, on the flip side, it's also nice to kind of pump up the fact that it's a summery beer because that actually means that in summer it sells probably twice as well, as, well as it should. <laughs> like in summer, people are buying it literally because it's got the word summer on the can. Um, so it kind of balances out. Like, you know, it could kind of just have, flat sales all year but i think it does this you know it kind of has a spike in summer because it's got summer and it um on the label so yeah it's uh it's interesting but yeah the, the, the porter sorry i was just going to say the porter doesn't doesn't really make sense to me like you know it still tastes great on a hot day like yeah. you know and you can just you know don't let it warm up like drink it cold out of the fridge if you want you know it to be a little bit cooler and more refreshing i, I don't really get that but you know i think that's probably uh it's a it's a beer nerd thing, you know. Beer nerds will drink whatever beer they feel like, regardless of the season. But you know, having said that, I think if you probably if you could actually analyse your your consumption over the last sort of ten years, you'd probably find that you drank a lot more dark beers in winter. You know, even if you tell yourself that there's no difference, um, I think it's just sort of a natural tendency. I think that's very true. Although I personally find it hard getting through summer with a lack of dark beers out there because people, of course, do Rieslings seasonally. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can always get out. <laughs> um, another that kind of brings us into this little question a little bit. So, you don't see many five hundred mil cans out and about anymore. It's no. I'm interested about the decision to do that and, and where that came from. Um, so where it came from was really simple in that when we started canning, we didn't have a canning machine. We had, um, there were uh, contract canners from Melbourne who were coming down to service Tasmania. And they were basically coming down for a week and driving around the state, you know, stopping at various breweries to can their product for them. Um, and we, at the time when we started canning, this is like three and a bit years ago, four years ago, um, we only had four tanks still at the time. Um, and so we were like, we can't afford to can everything because, you know, if we have a core range of four cans, the problem is that these guys come down like once every two months. And if we want to have beer ready for them, we're going to have to have all of our tanks full of ready to go condition carbonated beer, right? Mm -hmm. We only really had one bright tank. 
So we could obviously put a beer in the bright tank, use, you know, use a fermenter as a bright to move one over, then move one into that, move one into that. But it's a real pain in the ass to do. And uh, logistically, it would just be a nightmare because it would lock up our brewery, not being able to brew any any beer for kegs while we, you know, kind of condition these beers and waited. So we kind of decided we can only really do one or two beers to start with in can while we're doing it this way. And the summer ale and the IPA were the obvious choice. So we started with those and we were like, you know, what are the, what are the cans going to look like? What size are we going to go for? Um, and at the time, I think the two reasons were my favourite beers were in 500 mil cans, you know, um, modus operandi, all their beers were in 500 mil cans. The former tenant was, you know, one of my favourite beers. Um, you know, most, most breweries doing kind of cool, big, interesting seasonals were in 500 mil cans. Um, and we also kind of went, like, when we go to the pub, we want a pint, you know? Like, you know, um, I don't know if that's true over there, but down here, like, people drink pints. Like, hmm. you, you know, if you, if you want to, some people might drink a, a smaller beer because they're driving or whatever, um, but if you're not driving, you're going to have two or three beers. You're going to have pints, you know, because, because you know, a 10-ounce or a, or a schooner, like, it's kind of gone before you've even tasted it. <laughs> um, so most people want pints and so we're kind of like why would we not want a pint when we're at home <laughs> um yeah. so we're kind of like a 500 mil can almost a pint it just made sense to us and also financially we were like you know if you're going to sell something um you know sell someone the biggest unit you can <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, it's like, totally. like, yeah. like you know um if you have a choice of of, of selling you know your 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 um soaps individually or you know by, by in, um, in giant bars you know sell them the bigger thing because every purchase is going to you know basically move more volume i don't know there's, there's probably an element of that in there but um yeah so it was sort of a few little things that just kind of went it just it just made sense to us so that's yeah. how we started mm-hmm. i think the more interesting question is why are we still in 500 mil cans because motors switched to 375s a bunch of other breweries who started in 500 mil switched to 375s mm-hmm. The you know, 99% of breweries are in 375s and then do seasonals in 500s. We actually do the exact opposite. We do our core range in 500s and our seasonals in 375s. Um, and I think the reason is why why wouldn't we keep doing it? Um, yeah. Because we still like drinking out of pints. Yes. And yeah. the beer, you know, we're selling more and more beer. It's not affecting us negatively. I've had plenty of people trying to convince me that we would sell more beer if we change can size, you know, oh, you know, it, um, you know, oh, it would, you, you'd, you'd be doing heaps better if you were in 375 mil, heaps better. Cause more, you know, cause a lot of people don't want big cans. Hmm. I'll tell you what, if I, I, I haven't done an actual survey, but I know anecdotally that if I had a list of the comments that we've had about our beer and about um, can size specifically, yep. if I did a survey, it's overwhelmingly 90% of the comments are, I love your 500 mil cans. I'm so glad you're doing 500 mil cans. Don't change it. And there might be 10% that are saying, oh, it's a bit big. You should probably think 375. So if all the feedback I'm getting is these are great, they look great on a shelf. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the other thing too. They look great in a bottle shop shelf. They take up more space. Um, so, you know, if all the feedback we're getting is these are good, keep doing it. Um, we've asked bottle shops like the, that sell our beer, you know, should we change? Do you think we'd be you know, better off in 375 mil? Overwhelmingly, they've said no. So all signs point to keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it would be such a big risk to change it now 
like, you know, without any kind of evidence other than, you know, a, a handful of people who have said, yeah. yeah, some random opinion. Oh, I think you'd sell more beer. Well, prove it. You know, I, I, I would want some, I'd want to yeah. know for a fact that we were, that we were going to sell more beer or that the, the consumers wanted it. Yeah. I've toyed with the idea of, you know, um, just on a whim, like try, like doing both. Like just, let's just do summer in 375 mil cans this year for mm. summer, as well as 500. Let's do both. And let's just see which one sells more and see whether there is an uptick, you know, because of 375 mil. And then I kind of go, now that's just stupid. That's just being, you know, that's just kind of being um, reactive, you know, worrying that you might've, you know, that there might be a better, you know, the grass might be greener. Um, and it would be pretty hard to convince bottle shops to put the same product on the shelf with in two sizes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, every time I've had that thought, I'm like, no, that's just stupid. Probably the idea of putting QR codes on the cans, you know, for a while to say, should we change our can size? <laughs> Follow the QR code um, and just ask people. Um, yeah, that's probably a better idea is actually just, you know, do a survey, ask our customers what they want. But then there's that thing where in this just thought bubble, um, if you ask them and they say yes and they don't bite, like they still might prefer the 500 yeah. can, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. people, people what they think their their words and their actions don't always line yeah. up it's just too speculative it's um it's too hard to know and i think yeah i don't know if i if if we were getting a lot of noise about the 500 mil can being a problem if we were getting you know if the feedback was all pushing in that direction and we could see that our sales had stalled for some reason because you know and someone could sort of convince me that you know, oh, it's because of the 500 mil can. Sure, yeah. we do something about it, but mm-hmm. I'm fairly evidence based, and so far the evidence points to people like 500 mil cans. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, but um, not in the seasonals. We've decided that the seasonals should be 375, um, for a couple of practical reasons, but also because I don't know. I I hate when you buy a 500 mil seasonal of something and it's shit. Like, I don't like going, oh, now I've got to yeah. drink more of this. So um, I kind of like the idea that a, a seasonal beer is kind of small and, you know, like you, 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 you get a taste, you might like it, you might not. And if you do like it, there's more cans, you know, like yeah. rather than kind of forcing, especially with something like an Imperial Stout, um, you know, we've got one of them coming up and, you know, having, having 500 mils of a 12% beer is you know, probably just a little bit... Um, it's <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um, yeah, probably not very responsible of us, is it? So, um, yeah, I think it works out to be like you know three seventy five mil can. I think it works out to be like three point six standards or something. Like you know, yeah. So I think so. Yeah, on the topic of upsizing your booze, for lack of a better term. Mm. Um, so as you noted before, Tasmania is famous for a lot of amazing whiskies. Now, do you have any beers that you like to do boiler makers with, you know, matched with a whiskey locally? Do you have any, you, Absolutely. This, beer, this whiskey, yeah. this is what I recommend. Yeah, look, not specifically any particular whiskey. Like um, I haven't found like a perfect match that I go, oh, do that. But um, I've, I've tried boiler makers with a bunch of different local Tassie whiskies um, with, and and it, they, it kind of works with most things, probably not with the summer ale, but um, I had great boilermakers with the IPA um, that that really really can work so well with a really punchy hoppy beer, um, and the porter like obviously with the porter it yeah. just like you know there's some amazing matches. My probably my, my most memorable one that I can think of 
um, recently is um, the last few years, Lark started doing what has become my favourite Tasmanian whisky, um, which has got an amazing story to it where they, they um, you know, they have a distillery over the road from a winery called Frogmore Creek. Frogmore had some Pinot barrels that they let a well-known pastry um, uh, patisserie use to ferment their fruit mints for fruit mince pies for Christmas. Oh. So they stuck them in Pinot barrels and had basically all the fruit that you would put in fruit mince pies. Yeah. And then they used them. And then they had these like Pinot barrels that had, had fermented fruit mints in them. They didn't know what the hell to do with them. And so wow. they said, Lark across the road, do you want do you want this? And they went, sure, why not? And stuck some new make in it. Um, and however many weeks later, it wasn't even that long, by Christmas time that year, they tasted it and went, this is bloody amazing. <laughs> They'd made this Christmas Christmas cask of basically fruit mince pinot barrel fermented, um, you know, uh, aged um, Lark whiskey. Um, Could you call it a mold, mold whiskey or something? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's just fantastic. Like for, for such a young whiskey, it's got so much flavour. It tastes like Christmas. It's got those, you know, it's got the stuff that the, the spices and stuff that they put in the fruit mince pies. So it's kind of got, mm. you know, plums and raisins and all those sorts of flavours and, and cloves and the, you know, the, the cool spices, mm. nutmeg, whatever else is in the, in the fruit mince mixture. And it all comes through in the whiskey. Um, and they've, they've been doing it yearly. So every year they do another version of it um, the same sort of way and they're increasing their volumes of it. And every year it just gets, yeah, it's slightly different, but, but um, the same sort of concept. Um, and I love it. I love, I love the story of it. I love the concept of it. I love the flavour of it. And that with our porter, I've had those two together, um, is just match made in heaven. Like just this big sort of spicy, um, you know, fruit, fruit mince pie whiskey. Mm. Um, with a big, rich, chocolatey porter, it, to me, it's sort of like, yeah, it's like Christmas dessert. It's amazing, yeah. Well, like I said, I put your uh, porter with a bit of the um, raspberry, and yeah, I can, it, it lends itself to making some interesting uh, flavour experiences, I think. It's really good on ice cream. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It well, actually works, yeah. Work, work, works well as a pour-over. Yeah. Okay, I mean, itself. <laughs> I mean, it, it's... Um, yeah, it, I've I've tried that a few times. It's good, like a like a yeah. Um, you can do it as a floater as well, like scoop of ice cream, like oh, a yeah, spot. Yeah. But, but yeah. it works. I I prefer it like bowl of ice cream, vanilla ice cream with some porter poured over it. Works well. Yeah. So Warren, are you happy to indulge me with one last one, or do you want to get one in there? Uh, I'll get one quick one. Matter of fact, I'm going to steal Naomi's. Um, she asked it earlier in the chat, and I thought, oh yeah, I'll throw that in. Um, so the 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 canning date and the best before dates printed on the bottom of the cans, <laughs> and she was she was observant enough to notice that you've also printed a little message that uh, that the on there. So what's yeah. the story? What's the what? Yeah, what's the go with that? Um, uh, my my brother um, is he when we started Shambles, my younger brother he. Um, he became our bar manager, so he ran our venue, um, and you know, sort of super keen and kind of helped that get up and running. And then he showed a real keen interest in what was going on back of house in the brewery. So you know, he'd often, you know, if the bar was quiet and I was working late at night, he'd come down and ask me questions and be a pain in the ass <laughs> while I was trying to get work done. Um, and you know, he offered to help with stuff. So you know, I was working stupid hours, and and he would like, you know, well, you know, I can mill in for you if you teach me how to do it. 
um, I can clean kegs for you if you teach me how to do it. Um, in the, yeah, just sort of slowly sort of started doing these little odd jobs in the brewery in his spare time. And eventually kind of just went, you know, can you teach me how to brew on my spare days? So I taught him how to brew. Mm. Um, and then kind of went, well, I actually need another brewer. Like this, this is too hard to do with one. So probably easy to find a bar manager and another brewer. So um, basically, yeah, brought him over into the brew house instead and hired a different bar manager um, and he became, you know, the second brewer. Um, we've now got a team of, of four. Um, and, and I, you know, full disclosure, I actually don't do a lot of brewing anymore. Like I've finally gotten to that point where you know, other people do all the hard work for me. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I, so he became part of the brewery team. Um, and then as soon as we started packaging, he's got a, He's got a fairly, um, yeah. He's got a he's got a um, a pranky sense of humour. A very, um, you know, he he likes to do like subtle things in the background uh-huh. that that um, you know that people might not notice, but when they do, they might get a kick out of it. And from the very early days, without telling me, he started changing our date codes on the bottom of the cans. <laughs> it took me a while to realise, and it also took me a while to realise what the hell they were until I started you know recognising some of them and realised that they're actually all movie quotes. So. Pretty much every single one of them is a quote from some movie. Some of them I recognise. Some of them are so obscure I, I don't. Um, uh, some of them I've Googled and then realised I probably shouldn't because um, <laughs> I probably don't want to know. Um, so, yeah, hopefully what you've got on there is something very innocuous and not too offensive. <laughs> but, yeah. So th- this might be edited out later, but I, I know a brewery in Melbourne which will name remain nameless and I looked on the bottom of their can and I felt like they saw me the beer wanker coming and it just said chill out dickwad <laughs> what they wrote on the bottom of the can could be edited out later but anyway yeah. <laughs> no. um, I liked yeah yeah so I mean yeah most of them have been most of them have been fine you know we, we started like once I cottoned on to what he was doing I started joining in and we put a lot of nerdy science Star Wars you know quotes and stuff on there um but yeah, then he started sort of getting into, you know, a bunch of like like went through like a whole 80s movie theme and started putting quotes from Predator and stuff on there and you know, various movies that we grew up with as kids. So um yeah, I don't know where he's gotten to now. Like there are plenty of quotes out there, but yeah, I I I I don't know. I don't know. Um I haven't really been looking for a while. I kind of forgot that he was doing it, <laughs> to be honest. Probably should tell him to stop, but yeah, it's you know, it's a little no, don't tell him to stop. No, <laughs> never. It's I think it's like a I think it's like a little treasure hunt, you know. Yeah, if, um, yeah, totally. you know if, if, if people do happen to notice it, then you know they can kind of wonder about it and maybe Google it and figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Classic Easter egg. Love it. Mm. Um, you have been amazingly uh generous with your time, but I think Jake's got one more question. Just a very brief one, and I'm indulging myself um, having a, you know, being on board with this uh, ship. Uh, and uh, and that's basically uh, my, my background's in science and medical research. And I saw that your uh, brew pub, and I don't know how close to what you are going, what's going on there, but your brew pub was doing the Pint of Science uh, events, which we have in Melbourne as well, where you talk about science over beer. And I think they were talking about penguins and Arctic exploration as, as a, you know, a good topic down there. <laughs> but, um, uh, it, what, do you know much about what brought that on or have you, do you have any um, science yourself? So, so my background's in science as well. And I've, you know, obviously, you know, that play, played a big part in why I like got into brewing beer. Like it was sort of the science of, of becoming like figuring out why homebrew out of a can tastes like shit. And how do you, how do you, you know, what, what's the science in getting that to taste like commercial beer? Um, 
so yeah, I've also always sort of, you know, been attracted to any kind of things like that that we can be connected to. Um, we don't, I don't, I think we were talking to the Pine of Science people because they had another venue pre-COVID and then they stopped for a while. And so we were sort of going, hey, if you need a venue, um, we're here. So I'm not sure if that's actually started yet or not. There's, um, uh, there are a few, yeah, little like talk beer and beer and talk nights like that that happen around the place. One that we did for a long time, it was not science, but it was super interesting, was one called Pine of History. Um, and that ran for quite a few years until COVID hit and they haven't done it since then. Um, and that got really popular too. So it was basically people um, who were either professors at the university or PhD students or honours, you know, or, or even graduates basically coming to talk about their topic of interest that they had done their thesis on or whatever. It's some really interesting stuff in a field that I don't, you know, that I'm not really from. So that was really interesting for me to kind of yeah. see that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, I like doing all sorts of events. It's really great having those in the venue. It's um, it's it's fun having that in your workplace and and kind of going, oh, this cool, you know, this cool things happening here, and I can just go to it. Um, but yeah, the, I'm not sure if the one you're referring to that's coming up because I honestly haven't looked at. Uh, I think it might like, have so been somewhere in the last year. Sorry to interrupt you. I think it was in the last year, maybe. Just yeah, cool. Um, there's another one that's coming up that I'll talk about um, that they've done for the last. Th- this will be the third one. Um, that's they're calling experimental science or science made bearable. That's kind of the name of the event. And they started it mid COVID when Tazzy was sort of shut off from the rest of the world. Mm. And we took part in the first one and then we hosted the last one. We're hosting this one and brewing a beer for it where wow. they, they basically get four breweries. Um, and it was originally four Tazzy breweries. And last year it was, you know, a couple from Tazzy and a couple from interstate. Um, and this year, I think, I think we might be the only Tassie brewery and the other three might be interstate. I'm not sure. Um, they basically have said, you know, brew a beer and talk about the science of it in some fashion. So do, um, you know, something interesting um, with your beer and then brew it specifically for the event, can it for the event. People can buy it to, like you guys are doing, drink it online while you watch the event. Mm. Um, you can come to the event um, and, you know, watch it live, um, the people talking and interviewing. And, you'll ha- you know, as part of your entry price, you'll get a four-pack of the beers so you can taste them along. So that's coming up in August, and that's really cool. It's a really cool event because it's, um, yeah, right up my alley. It's it's basically talking about the science of what you've done, not just not just necessarily flavours and whatever. Like, it's, you know, it's what's gone into it. So we're, we're doing a beer for that one this year. So that that, that awesome. might be on our Facebook page somewhere. Do, do you have an idea of what beer you're doing or do you want to keep that under your hat till the event? I do, but I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, I think I won't, I won't steal their thunder because I think they, oh, want to, yes. they want to announce announce the beers down the track. But um, uh, I'll just tell you that it's going to be weird. It's, it, yeah, it's going to, yeah, we've kind of gone a little bit um, stupid um, in that in, in the, rather than kind of do... Not, not weird in terms of like, let's throw in weird ingredients, but basically just, we, we kind of, we got given, um, that this year they decided to focus on the four main ingredients and we drew the short straw. We were the last one they asked and no one else wanted to do water um, because, you know, well, water's boring, but also water chemistry is actually a bit, you know, um, hard to talk about. Um, so yeah, I kind of approached it like I approached most things to do with science and kind of went what's something I'd be really interesting to find out and I wouldn't be I wouldn't care if the if the results were terrible like mm. let's do that 
So yeah, it could be the worst beer we've ever made, or it could be something amazing. But well, at least it'll, it'll give us something to talk about. Well, <laughs> your parameter wasn't yeast. I know there's a wall of something in Amona, and uh, maybe you could get yeast from that source. I don't know. <laughs> something for people to Google later. Someone tried to do that once. I saw a um a crowdfund many many years ago where someone was trying to launch a beer fermented mm-hmm. with with yeast from that area mm-hmm. <laughs> from the map of tasmania yeah you, like you're on the money like uh, yeah. trying to keep it from an edit <laughs> yeah, no no we'll, we'll have that in that's fine it, it was the weirdest thing i'd ever seen they were like in a market this whole you know oh it's sexy beer it's like no that's gross yeah that's anyway. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know who'd buy it that's yeah that's fundamentally the issue like i don't know yeah, it was weird. Well, anyway. as a scientist, I'd very, say... Very uh, topic. As, not, as a number, we're more microbes than we are human in terms of our total cell yeah, count. that's so, true. You know, we could use <laughs> those microbes in a lot of ways. So. True, true, true. Um, Cornell, you have been really, really generous with your time and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, should we start with the shambles or should we finish with the shambles um where can we find you online where where yeah what what have you got going on that we should be aware of and and listen to and where can we get you in melbourne for one so um melbourne's a tricky one we did have some distribution over there we just started pre-covid and then covid kind of ruined it um we sort of kind of sort of half have a bit of a relationship with um, our distributors are mates with a distributor over there called Bandwagon. Um, and they've occasionally been buying, you know, like a, a mixed palette of our stuff to take to select venues. Uh-huh. So some it's hard to answer the question, where can you get it in Melbourne? Because the answer is, I don't actually know. Like it right. kind of, they, they take stuff. Um, then they sell it to somewhere. It's transparent. It's not, sorry, it's it's not transparent to us where. Um, so it sort of ends up all over the place. And then someone will tell me, I found a random, you know, I found a case of your IPA in some bottle shop in Moorabbin. And I'm like, that's nice. I'm like, where can I get it? Like, I didn't know it was there in the first place. <laughs> um, so at the moment, um, what we've sort of been doing is that people have been emailing us and sort of saying, I, re- I came to Tassie, really liked your beer. Where can I get it? And we've sort of gone, oh, look, you know, if you are happy to pay for freight, we'll just, you know, ship it, like, to, you. Ship it to you. Um, and we've started, we've been getting more and more of those requests. So we haven't uh-huh. set up a proper website for them. We're just sort of doing an ad hoc, which is a pain in the bum, but at least it's getting, you know, the people who want it are getting it yep. and they're telling their friends. So we're sort of hoping that it won't be too long before we have proper distribution over there. But it, for the time being, it's kind of like, you know, send us an email and we'll see what we can do. Great. Um, but yeah, the um, that science made bearable event. If you want to try this, could be terrible, horrible, worst beer you've ever made in your life. Um, if you want to try it along with three other beers from other breweries, um, they are yeah. I, I think I'm pretty sure that you can like order it and have it shipped to you before the event. So wow. that'd be an interesting thing to be part of if you if you jump on their Facebook page. Um, and follow that um but yeah failing that it's kind of like you know come to tassie come and visit <laughs> it's nice down here <laughs> yeah. it's, it's nice down here and it's the best way come and come and visit the brewery come and see what, what we're doing where we're doing it um have a chat you know enjoy it you know fresh right. off the taps and your uh shambles brewing on facebook i see shambles brewery yeah okay yeah um, and, our, and our website's just shamblesbrewery.com.au, I think. 
Brilliant. Once again, thank sure. you for your time. And a really special thank you for Jacob for filling in tonight. Um, you've done an amazing job, so thank you very much. But a massive thank you to Shambles Brewing for, for coming on and, and sharing all those amazing stories. Thanks, yeah, thanks for having thank me. Thank you, Cornell. And thank you, Warren and David and, and Trav, who's not here. This is lovely. Thank you. Uh, I can't stop my recording. <laughs>